Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Welcome to the Being With podcast. Do you ever feel like your discipleship isn't quite working, that things are too small, that you don't know how to move forward? Well, what if what you needed to do is to supersize your discipleship, supersize your spirituality? That's what we're talking about today. I'm Jeff Holsklaw, and this is the Being With podcast, where we're looking at the intersection of neuroscience and faith, and it is brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is seeking to grow the faith of everyday people. And today we have Brad Strawn. He's a PhD and he is the Evelyn and Frank Freed Professor for the Integration of Psychology and Theology at the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology, Fuller Seminary. He holds degrees in theology and psychology, which I'm so jealous about, and has advanced training in psycho, psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Brad is also the co-author with Warren Brown, whom we're going to have in our next episode. So this is kind of a two for one. Um, he, they both wrote a book called The Physical Nature of Christian Life, Neuroscience, Psychology, and the Church. And then more recently, Enhancing the Christian Life, How Extended Cognition Augments Religious Community. Brad, thanks for being on today. Yeah. You still there? Sorry. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. So yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I am jealous. I'm like, you know, I already have one doctorate in theology. It's like, can I get another <laughs> one in neuroscience <laughs> or psychology? But no, I should not. My wife would kill me. <laughs> so we're going to jump into this idea of how to supersize your discipleship, what that even means. But first of all, how did you get started in uh, psychology or what has been your interest to neuroscience and these types of uh, disciplines after all, like, isn't the Bible enough to help us grow as people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, my story I think begins with growing up in a very academic family. My father was a college professor, um, at a Christian university. And, um, so for, for me, questions of theology and science were always on the table. Um, there was no concern that science uh, somehow contradicted scripture. Uh, rather, science augmented scripture, um, revealed the work of God in the natural world. And uh, so I went to college thinking I was going to be a physician because I wanted to work with people. Um, but uh, drawing molecules and memorizing muscles didn't seem like it was related to people very much. Uh, so I really struggled between psychology and theology and ultimately found my way into the best of both worlds, uh, where I could become a clinical psychologist and, um, and get theological training at the same time. And, um, um, you know, the, the life of the, the, 
the brain, the mind, the, the body, all that's so fascinating. And um, as we've got more and more interesting ways to look inside the brain and see what's going on in there, um, that became more and more interesting to me. And Warren Brown, my co-author, was actually my uh, doctoral advisor. So uh, I got pulled. I got pulled into um, uh, really neuroscience through him. He's a neuropsychologist, and um, uh, over the years, I began to watch uh, what he was working on and doing. Actually, after I graduated from Fuller, and he had uh, co-authored a book with uh, Nancy Murphy called "Whatever Happened to the Soul," mm-hmm. uh, which kind of was a big, big deal when it came out, and. And I said to him one day, you know, you really ought to write a book that's a little bit more oriented toward lay people. And he said, okay, let's do that. And so (laughs) that's how the physical nature of Christian life came out. Um, And then a few years after that, um, I was actually in England um, in a bookstore, a bookshop there. And I came across Andy Clark's book, who's a philosopher uh, who wrote a book called Supersizing the Mind. Um, and I remember taking a picture of it and sending it to Warren and saying, like, here's our second book. Um, and uh, to my surprise, he said, OK, but he's t- now told me he's done with books. He never wants to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. Never wants to write another book. Well, we'll see. We'll see about see that. if you can change his mind when you talk to him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, so let's jump into this. Um and, and we could talk about the physical nature of human existence because I know that's part of it. But th- what is this idea in the subtitle of having extended cognition and why right. is that going to help our Christian life? What is, well, we'll get to that second question in a second, but what is yeah. extended cognition yeah, in the sure. first place? Sure. Is it that um, Skynet and the artificial intelligence is going to take over the world and, and they're going like, <laughs> to invade my brain or what is right? What is, what is right. This? Right. Well, it's related in some ways to, to some ah, of this. Stuff. <laughs> let, let me just back up for a second, though, and begin with the idea of embodied cognition. And, okay. and um, one of the ways that, that cognitive psychologists have understood thinking uh, for a long time is sort of through a computer model, which is that the body is sort of like the hardware and the mind is sort of like the software. And the body's job is just to take in information and the real action, the real good stuff, if you will, happens inside the mind, in the software. Things are dealt with like sort of symbolic abstract concepts that's pumped back out through the body into the world. Like a computer might send something to a printer or send something through a Wi-Fi. Um, That model's not entirely wrong, but it's really missing what we're discovering now, which is the fact that um, humans actually think with our bodies. Um, Our... um, um, our bodies, the shape of our bodies, the way we use our bodies, the kind of bodies we have actually shape and form um, our minds and the way we think, perceive, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We think our way through the world, as Mary Ponte says, we feel our way through the world as bodies. Um, so that's the first important point. But the second important point is the idea that embodies are always embedded with other bodies and other things. And so not only do we think with our bodies, but we also think with other artifacts and people outside of our bodies. We extend our thinking, we extend our human capacities, uh, actually beyond normal human limitations, by becoming soft coupled to, um, like I said, artifacts or other people outside of us. So on the sort of technological side, Jeff, as you're saying, if you think about, I'm a type 1 diabetic and I wear a 
uh, continuous glucose monitor. Uh, continuous glucose monitor is a device attached to my body that reads my sugar levels and then communicates to my phone, which then tells me how much insulin I should take or not take. It's almost like I have an external pancreas. Mm -hmm. That's a form of extension um, that I become coupled with and it enhances my information. If I didn't have that, I would really be in trouble. Um, but you can think about other medical wearable devices like pacemakers or you know internal defibrillators. Um, and then begin to think about how we use our cell phones or computers. Um, we're able to, to manage huge amounts of data and information, uh, memory, uh, uh, things way beyond the normal capacity of the human brain. And it can do things that our brains are not very good at, like high-level computations, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so that's the idea of extension. Um, that uh, and, and so humans are actually wired to extend. We do it all the time, whether we know it or not. But we can actually become more conscious of it, more purposeful about it, which is a big part of what the book's about. Mm. I love that. Well, let's let's just peel back a couple layers. So one thing sure. you said was thinking with our bodies, and I, I I posted a screenshot of a page on your book uh, on Facebook about um, smiling and reading people's facial expressions and women who had had Botox um, yes. and, and the fact that their kind of faces kind of more permanently are smiling led them to both feeling better, but also not being able to read the negative facial, sad facial expressions on other people. And so there's this physical right. uh, feedback system that because a face is a certain way, it means you have certain feelings being produced in yourself, but it also means you can't read certain feelings on others. So is, right. that, is that an example? I, I posted that. And yeah. People are just like, what? Yeah. And then yeah, other that's people a... are like, let's all get Botox and we'll feel better. <laughs> so could you explain that a little bit? How is it that my facial yeah, sure. muscles could affect how I read other people and how right. uh, I right. might feel about myself? Right. So, um, we have often thought, right, that I have a feeling inside and then my facial expression mirrors that. Mm -hmm. But what this study demonstrates is that um, my facial expression, actually my embodied experience reads my emotions um, is one way to put it. So so people who get Botox, particularly right at the frown line, right there in the middle kind of a, between your eyes, um, they can't frown. They can't do the facial expression with their, with their the eyes that indicate brow. the furrowed brow. Yeah. And so not being able to do that, it's as if the it's, it's it's as if the body goes, hey, wait a second. I guess I'm not really sad. I guess I'm not really depressed. Um, and it's been found to be useful as a treatment for depression, actually. It's 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 lowered women's depression um, who've had this Botox. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that we also know that the brain has what are called mirror neurons and mirror neurons are the idea that um uh, I have neurons that fire when I do something, like when I frown, um, but they'll also fire when I see you frowning. Mm -hmm. um, and what we find out is that if I can't frown, if I can't make that furrowed brow, it sort of messes up my neuron, uh, uh, my neuron, my, my mirror neuron reception, and I'm not as good anymore at detecting what's going on in you because I can't mirror it in my own self. Mm -hmm. uh, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. mirror neurons are kind of the core of empathy. And it's a great example, again, of how the body, we're, 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 we're reading, we're knowledge, we, we gain knowledge, we learn, we think in the broad sense of thinking with our bodies. Mm. Yes. 
And then, but it goes to the next point then, which is that we're a mess enmeshed like socially with other people. And exactly. that our thinking and feeling isn't just moving from the inside out, but oftentimes it's from the outside in. And so people exactly. are connected. Humans, yeah. Them. We, we imitate. to mimicking each other um, in small little body movements in, in swaying together or whatever it might be uh, we're wired to imitate um, which makes sense when you think about children and development and that sort of thing yeah for sure so you talked about soft coupling and other things I teach uh, a course on theology and culture and so we talk a lot about tools and how you know generally you know one of the things that separates you know humanity from all other animals is our extensive use of tools um, but this idea of we don't just use tools, like we kind of become tools or the tools kind of become part of us. Become part of, us, part yes. of what you mean by soft or, you know, what others are talking about soft coupling. And so, um, and I, the examples you used, I was just like, oh, no dust. So just even having a pen <laughs> and paper to do some long division or multiplication and carrying the numbers over is a soft coupling kind of tool extension of my mind because it's, right. you know, I became a pastor and a theologian, so I wouldn't have to do math, quite frankly. Right? <laughs> right. And so, um, but, you know, so I hate doing math, right? And I can't hold yeah. the numbers in my mind. And so just, just even that like momentary, you know, kind of calculation on pen and paper is what you would call like, is that right? Is that like a soft coupling? Yeah, or is that like, yeah, yeah, that's soft coupling. That's an example of extended cognition um, for problem solving. And so you can talk about extending cognition with memory or problem solving or acquisition of new knowledge. There's lots of different ways to talk about it. But yeah, there's certain things like, you know, if I give you two, uh, two, two digit numbers to add up in your head, you probably can do that. But if I give you three, three digit numbers to multiply, mm-hmm. very few people can do that. But as soon as you have a paper and pencil, you've extended yourself into those tools. And so what philosophers of mind say is that you're thinking with that paper and pencil. They become an extension um, of, of how you're thinking. Another a, a slightly different example, Jeff, though, back to tools, is the idea of a skilled carpenter who uses a hammer. Mm-hmm. Um, the skilled carpenter becomes so adept with that hammer and so skilled with it, he or she, they don't think about the really, they don't think about the hammer, right? They, they, they have a very different way of approaching nailing a, you know, a nail in than I do. And what we find out is that the brain actually maps the end of their hand as if it's the end of the hammer. Mm-hmm. So, so there's this fascinating neural kind of mapping that goes on when people are extended into tools that they're using on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, unless you're somewhat clumsy, but when you're walking around your house, you're not generally running into walls and doors. You're not hitting yeah. your shin on the coffee table because your body knows where your body ends. Your mind exactly. you know, knows where you end. But you're saying that, you know, with extensive tool use, and this happens with musicians, this also happens with athletes as far as like where the ball is. So soccer players, how come they touch it's You know, because that's... Yep. A physical extension. The body has incorporated that into its framework. Okay, so this yes. is all the lead up. Then, what does this matter for Christian life? You say at the beginning of the book. So again, we're with uh, Dr. Brad Strawn, and we're talking about his new book that he co-authored with Warren Brown, "Enhancing Christian Life: How Extended Cognition Augments Religious Community." And you start off uh, in the in the prologue. You say, "I am not a Christian." You say, what we can really say is only something like, we are Christian. Now, what does that mean? 
Are you saying I'm not a Christian? Are you not even a Christian? <laughs> this isn't a show about doubting faith. I mean, it could be. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I am not a Christian, but we are Christian. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of layers to that, right? One is just the idea that um, we don't believe in, in solitary Christendom. Uh, even theologically, we believe God calls a people. Um, we see that from the very beginning. Um, those people expand and become the church. Um, and, um, you know, as you would know uh, better than, than, the, than I, too, this, this whole idea that we read such individualism into the scriptures, um, where the culture and the context is so much more of a collectivist, pluralist uh, society. Um, there's sort of that level. But when we then interact with things like embodied, um, embedded, extended, emergent, and uh, uh, cognition, um, what we can say is that um, I can do by myself if I define it as giving some sort of intellectual assent to propositional beliefs. Mm-hmm. But if Christianity is much more of an embodied, lived out uh, uh, life, in the world, um, then I can't, I don't do it by myself. I'm never really by myself is one of the first mm-hmm. things. I'm never really truly alone, even though I act like I am. Um, but what we actually believe, Jeff, is that you can have a form of spirituality that is individualistic, inward, and in, in private, but it's kind of puny, if I can use mm-hmm. that term. Mm-hmm. Um, to make it deeper and more robust is to supersize it by by very consciously extending our, our Christian life into the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, of the church, um, and and um, engaging in faith in such a way that it is an embodied, enacted faith rather than a sort of inward, individualistic, um, how do I feel about myself and my relationship with God? So there's lots of implications to this, right? But, but um, the way Warren and I understand our faith is I can't really be a Christian all by myself. Um, I have to engage with others uh, to do this right. Mm. So you're kind of, and you didn't use this language in the book, so I don't want people to think that you did, but (laughs) would you say you're, while you appreciate the impulse of some people saying, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious, um, you might say, well, it's good to be spiritual, but you need to be not religious, but like you need to be community. You need to be in an extended embodied enmeshed community yeah you do yeah. spend some time uh, and i know you love the spiritual formation movement uh dallas willard and richard foster uh but you do uh and, and i was and i think many people my age you know i'm early 40s you know that, that really helped us i came across all that stuff right in my early 20s and i was like supercharged not super not supersized but it did supercharge <laughs> right right my discipleship and my spiritual life but you have some concerns about how they talk about a spiritual maturity and development. Uh, so could you kind of go through that just a little bit? At, yeah, with sure. the caveat that I know you really appreciate these movements, but there is a concern. Yes. What's that? Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, I think, thanks for that caveat, because I do appreciate and respect Renovare and the work that's been done there. I think where the real problem has emerged is, is frankly, oftentimes within evangelical Western churches, particularly. I think that um, folks in those churches have had a tendency at times to misread that literature, again, as being very individualistic, inward and private. So what I need to do is I need to go alone into a place of solitude, do my spiritual practices by myself, change something inside of me, and then that will come out and change my behavior in some way. 
Um, and so what happens, one of the outcomes of that is that people begin to um, assess the, the flourishing of their spirituality by some sort of inward state or feeling. You know, we hear people in evangelicalism all the time talk about feeling close or distant to God. Mm. Um, I think, though, if you read the great saints, that's not language they often use, you know, um, or even Mother Teresa, right, po post her death, writes about how distant she felt from God. Um, but she kept finding God in all the, the people on the streets of Calcutta, right? She continued to engage in an embodied, extended way in the world with her faith. Um, so that that's kind of my concern is that that spiritual uh, modern Western evangelical uh, spirituality becomes quite disembodied. It becomes disconnected even from like fruits of the spirit, um, you know, what one does with one's life, how one cares for our bodies, my body and other bodies. But again, I don't think that's completely there in the literature. I think, you know, if you read Thomas Merton or Henry Nouwen, for example, you know, they talk a lot about an inward journey, but then you'll hear them say things like, if this doesn't result in how you love your neighbor, it's all bunk, you know? <laughs> sure. So I think, I think when, when, when spiritual formation is done well, um, it, uh, it leads to an embodied, enacted, extended life of faith with others. And that's sometimes we stay away even from the word spirituality and prefer to talk about Christian life. Because for us, that's much more of a, it feels more inclusive and robust and holistic. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what I, I really appreciated that. Um, too often, you know, and I'm in more of a charismatic kind of situation. And so maybe those spiritual disciplines of the contemplative tradition aren't there, but those that seeking after the spirit and the individualist experience, uh, feeling of God being near or far or powerful or absent, things like that. So, um, I just like the the cognitive or neuroscience um, way of filling out the need for community, right? Because yeah. so yeah. often we're like, oh yeah, Western individualism is a problem. Uh, we need more community. But what does that really mean? Or uh, what does that really look like? And so you you actually, you, you and Warren, uh, you made this surprising statement that your personal devotions aren't even really personal anyways. <laughs> So could you explain what that means? Yeah, yeah, I'll try. Um, well, first of all, you know, even if I'm alone praying, I'm only alone praying because someone taught me to pray. Right. And so um, I carry all those people, all those experiences, all those events inside of me. We, we borrow a term from, from Sandra Buechler called the internal chorus. Um, we, we carry other bodies inside of us, right, as, as memories and as, as representations of others inside of us. And so in the first sense, we're never really alone. Um, but, but if we think about ourselves as embodied, extended people of faith, and that, that the, the body of faith, uh, that, the, that, the, that the church is, is the central location, then I think it can help us recognize consciously that when I go to read scripture, I don't, again, I don't just read it for Brad. I read it for how is Brad to be in community? How is Brad to be in the world with people of faith and people not of faith? Um, who are the people that, that, that God is putting on my mind? It's not that I'm not, um, it's not that I'm not, you know, communing with God or communing with the spirit. I believe in the spirit. I believe the spirit's everywhere, by the way, and in and through all things. Amen. Um, I can't get away from the spirit, actually. <laughs> uh, I think the spirit is somehow making my neurons fire right now. But um, 
but but it's really a kind of um, it's really kind of a a mindset of way of thinking about um, my <clears throat> why I do this spiritual formation thing. I don't just do it for me. I do it for the glory of God. I do it for the sake of the world. Right. I do it with with Jesus's great commission in mind. Um, and and the development of the fruits of the spirit towards one another, and so I don't I don't ever do it all for myself. I don't do it to create an internal feeling of being close to God. If that happens, that's like a byproduct, and that's wonderful. Um, but but for me, where I most see and experience God at work is in this, you know, what I would describe as an ontological relationality that occurs when I'm with other people. Um, that's when I when I when I go oh. Okay, <laughs> something's going on now that feels like the spirit of God's really at work. Well, yeah, absolutely, and and that's you know I as I've been you know working through neuroscience and all these types of things with you know a biblical and theological kind of background and grid, you know you just see that you know the ancient wisdom that is in the Bible is already you know being confirmed. And so you know when Jesus says where yeah. two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. Well, you know. You could just totally spiritualize that, which I'm not opposed to, but the idea of extended <laughs> cognitions being enmeshed and embodied in our relationships, it's like, aha, like that actually right. makes sense when the spirit of the Lord is among us uh, and we are gathered together. Um, right. There's something right. new and exciting that there is, you know, the mind of Christ is being known uh, yeah. in that moment. That's really yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of the things Warren might talk about this a little bit with you next time, but just this idea of how when we, one of the things that neuroscience has taught us and along with, with mathematical theory is this concept of emergence. And so when, when we have these complex dynamical systems that, that are interacting with one another, um, sort of non-physical properties can emerge from those, which then can influence the system themselves. And I know that sounds probably, you know, kind of heady and, and confusing, but essentially... That. <laughs> but essentially, one of the things you know we're pretty comfortable saying is that spirituality emerges from from these embodied I- encounters uh, between people. And um, so, you know, I, rather than spirituality is something that I create or resides somewhere inside of me or in some side of you, it's something that emerges when um, we're doing uh, and being who God designed us to be. Mm. And th- so the last topic that I want to talk to you about then is yeah. the, su- the Sunday morning worship service is how, um, you know, we think of the, you know, a lot of people will judge us a church service on, you know, did that sermon feed me or did I like the music or did my, you know, my child, something for my children or something like that. Um, but you kind of go through Sunday morning practices and say, these are all uh, soft coupling. These are all different communal extended cognition practices. So could you just somewhat quickly go through some of the main, whether it's worship, preaching, prayers, um, how are these yeah. things examples, not of private spirituality that's kind of done in a public forum, but is actually right. an example of common Christian life extended among us? Yeah, sure, sure. And again, let me say, you know, we're always soft coupling. Um, sometimes we, uh, and, and sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. And by the way, soft coupling doesn't always mean that what emerges is good. Sometimes right. what emerges is problematic, right? Yeah. Um, and so, in, in some ways, I, Warren and I are not—you know—we uh, don't have enough hubris to say we're saying something entirely brand new here. Uh, what we want to say is we want to deepen the understanding here in such a way that maybe we lean into some of these practices in some more conscious and interesting ways. Yeah. So, for example, if you take um, if you take a prayer time in the service, 
where maybe one person is praying alone. And, and we do this in my church, and I'm, I'm, I'm frequently the person doing it, you know, sort of praying alone for people. People are listening. Mm-hmm. A different kind of it, say, then. Uh, well, first of all, it's it's more communal and extended than if I we're all just praying by ourselves somewhere alone, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm really about public prayers. But it's even maybe more powerful if we engage in prayers of the people, where the people are also praying out loud, loud, loud. The people are saying their their names, they're lifting up their kinds of concerns. Any way that we can take the common practices of the church and make them more embodied and more communal or extended, I think makes them supersizes them. Um, so, for example, you know, we've we've been critical of of worship, musical worship, when it feels like performance, when it feels like I'm an audience watching you perform. Now, again, I know that blesses people sometimes, mm-hmm. um, but so does a U2 concert. Um, the question is, how do I engage as part of the congregation in that experience? Well, one of the things we would say is it helps if you can hear your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um this might partly because I'm old now, but I like to see my neighbors. <laughs> and I know there's a real there's a real uh, push in modern worship today to kind of turn everything quiet and dark and make it about me and Jesus. And uh, and I just push back on that all day. I say, I get it. You like it. That's fine. You do you. But I think it's Jesus and we, not Jesus and me. So I don't want to forget my neighbors. Mm-hmm. I want to know that we're all in this together because, frankly, my neighbors are often the ones who are making me a better Christian. Um, cause I have to practice loving them when they're annoying and they get to practice loving me when I'm annoying and I get to practice loving them when they're off key and vice versa. Right. So there's, there's some way that if I can see, and in these, these congregational experiences participate in embodied ways, we think it extends it. We think it supersizes it, it makes it more again, deep and robust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the pre, so again, all these practices we think can be done in sort of individualistic disembodied ways, or can be done in more communal extended and embodied ways. Even the preaching moment can be right. pretty disembodied, um, or it, you know, if there are ways in which the the preacher can can um, capture the imagination uh, of the listeners, um, you know, this is what the great narrative preachers I think do because now our now our brains are running offline simulations, um, mm-hmm. so we're actually really engaged in it. I think preaching that's sort of propositional and abstract is not. I mean, we know this, right? Uh, is not as powerful as preaching that's narrative and 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 calls the listener to to engage in these sort of uh, offline ways. Um, I also think that that ser- this is my you know my, my personal bias is that if sermons don't kind of have a so what moment, mm-hmm. um, then I've just got a bunch of information, but I'm not quite sure what to do with it, or I'm not quite sure how to be challenged. So um, I always tell when I when I'm uh, and I preach regularly at my church. Uh, I'm a pastor at my church as well. Is um, sermons should disturb you? Um, they should be little catastrophes uh, that get you thinking. Well, something needs to change, and then we need to provide the church needs to provide the opportunity for that change to occur. Mm-hmm. Right? We need to be able to take people from oh, I've been too self centered into okay, now here's an opportunity for me to serve. Right. So there's a way in which the whole life of the church has to connect. Yeah, build the response in right there in the worship service rather than saying, well, and go do that sometime at work later this week. So exactly. Start, start practicing immediately. Well, and even this kind of conversation is a as a kind of cognitive extension where two people are in conversation where you find yourself saying things that maybe you didn't know before yes. because now you're kind of just, there's an emergent process even in this. So thank you so much exactly. for being 
on today. Yes, Again, yes. This is Brad Strawn, who has co-authored a book with Warren Brown called Enhancing Christian Life. This is the Being With podcast, where we're seeking the intersection of neuroscience and faith. Thank you.